we've put together a brand new sample of RAR Premium. So if you've been on the fence about joining us inside RAR Premium, you can get a free sample now to see if it's a good fit for your family. To get that free sample, go to readaloudrevival.com slash sample or just text the word RAR sample like it's all squished together in one word. <laughs> RAR sample to the number 33777. Okay, here's the show. You're listening to the Read Aloud Revival Podcast. This is the podcast that helps you make meaningful and lasting connections with your kids through books. Hello, hello there. Sarah McKenzie here. We are back to our every other Tuesday broadcast of the Read Aloud Revival podcast. Today is a conversation I had with one of my favorite thinkers. Alan Jacobs. Alan is a distinguished professor of humanities in the honors program at Baylor University. He's written many wonderful books, including a biography of C.S. Lewis, a biography of the Book of Common Prayer, and my very own favorite, which we're going to talk about a lot today, is called The Pleasures of Reading in an Age of Distraction. I mean, I just love this book. I've read it multiple times, and I get something new from it at every pass. I also really enjoyed Alan's book, How to Think. Oh my goodness, I think his university students are so lucky. I would love to sit in on one of his classes someday. I feel like my brain is, I feel like it wakes up, it comes alive when I'm reading his work and apparently when I'm talking to him. <laughs> this was my first conversation with Alan Jacobs and it was just a delight. In this episode, you're going to hear him talk about the importance of reading at whim. That is, reading what gives you delight as well as the importance of being able to have your own reading taste. And you guys, this translates right over to our kids. They need to read at whim and to have the freedom to develop their own reading tastes as well. He also talks about the value of reading something you don't really enjoy. And I was fascinated by his response to my question about what reading is for. I enjoyed every minute of this conversation. I hope you do too. Before we get there though, I'm going to answer a listener question. Hi, Sarah. My name is Nikki Petragallo. I have two kids, four and six, and my question is about reading levels. My first grader is routinely tested for his reading level at school. Uh, going into school, he was ahead. Um, both my kids could read um, before the age of five. Um, however, I've noticed that my son has plateaued and the reading level has not been progressing, uh, like it, it was at the beginning. And my question for you is whether or not we should hold so much weight in those reading reading levels versus really just encouraging them to enjoy reading at home and continuing the decoding and, and reading out loud to each other. We have read to our kids since they were tiny. We continue to do so. Um, but I do see that these are struggles and I want to make sure that um, my child is continuing to build his reading um, uh, abilities, but I'm not sure if I need to be focusing too much on that reading level or if that's just a general indicator and we just keep doing what we're doing. Thanks for your podcast and all that you do. It has been invaluable to me over the last year. So thank you. 
Okay, you have opened up a can of worms, my dear Nikki. <laughs> reading levels. Uh, reading levels are, quite honestly, very rarely useful. They're most helpful as a diagnostic tool to help a teacher know what a student understands or gets so that she knows how to, you know, what to teach that child next. The problems arise when we use reading levels as a way to measure whether a child is progressing at whatever we're currently calling an appropriate pace. And why I'm saying whatever we're currently calling our appropriate pace is because that pace fluctuates pretty wildly over time. Just consider this. Consider that 10 years ago, only 15% of kindergartners could read. And by that, I mean only 15% of kids who finished kindergarten could read at the end of their kindergarten year, could read at all. If we go back 30 years, only 5% of kindergartners could read at the end of their kindergarten year. But these days, it's pretty expected that at the end of their kindergarten year, kindergartners are capable of reading at a much higher level than you or I were expected when we were kindergartners. Certainly that our parents or grandparents were expected at the same age. But of course, kids didn't change, right? We're not suddenly having babies that are so much more reading advanced than our parents did. So it's kind of silly that we all think that they should be able to read earlier. And um, Let me tell you a little bit about um, some research. Dr. Arnold Giselle is the head of the Alliance for Childhood, and he wrote this in a report. I'm just going to quote him right here. And I'll put a link to this in the show notes so that you know where to find this information yourself. All children go on the same path of development. However, some go faster, some go slower, and all have spurts and setbacks along the way. The obvious example is the age children learn to walk. Some children learn to walk as early as nine months, some as late as 15 months, but that's all normal. And we all agree that the early walker is not a better walker than the late walker. (laughs) A similar example is the age that children learn to read. Some children learn to read at age three or four years, others not until seven years or later. That range is quite normal. The most compelling part of the reading research is that by the end of third grade, early readers have no advantage over later readers. Some later readers even go on to become the top in their class. Reading early is not an indicator of higher intelligence. End quote. I'm going to repeat one thing he said there. By the end of third grade, early readers have no advantage over later readers. Okay, so let's come back to your situation, Nikki. I am sorry that you're having to deal with reading level testing because I don't really think it makes a whole lot of sense um, that we expect our kids to learn to read at the same pace, right? So even if you're just comparing your son to himself, his learning is not going to be completely linear. It's kind of more like a jig-jaggy saw. You know, like if I was, (laughs) if you could see my finger, you'd see it going up and down, up and down. Because learning happens in fits and spurts. It's not completely linear. So tell me this, when was the last job interview that you or someone you know took where one of the questions was, how old were you when you were reading fluently? (laughs) Right? Isn't that just a ridiculous question? That's because it doesn't matter. Uh, We know that early readers are not better readers than later readers. In fact, okay, so I have six kids, right? Three oldest of them are teenagers. All of them are avid readers and good readers. Um, All of them, by the way, were late readers. If they had taken, any of them had taken reading level tests at first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, they would not, they would have been remediated, right? They would have, I would have been told they were behind. So what we need to remember is that early reading is not an indicator of better reading than late reading. And in your particular case, if your son was reading before he went to kindergarten, he sort of did that big spurt ahead of time, you know, before he went to school, before he started school. And 
Now his pace is not going, it's not like he's going to be a racehorse the whole way. There's going to be fits and spurts, but that's okay because him being able to read before he left for kindergarten um, wasn't actually an indicator that he was going to be a better reader. And him being, you know, going on a plateau, like you mentioned right now, is also not an indicator that he is going to be a better reader or a worse reader. You know, when you're your reading level tests come back and you get this information, that's information. So that's great that there's not really problem with the information. It's when we make the information mean something it doesn't mean. The information does not mean that your child is not going to be an amazing, voracious reader. In fact, a lot of the best readers and some of the best writers that we know today uh, were very late or struggling readers for many, many years. So I think what we need to do is just take the information. You want to take that information and just don't make it mean something it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean anything about your child's intelligence. It just means pace has slowed down some. Um, I would read aloud tons uh, so that stories are joy and warmth and light and connection and magic. And yes, I would keep doing what you're doing. A little bit of phonics, you know, the reading practice, smile a lot, and then just not let that anxiety about how long it's taking a certain child to get the hang of reading a, reading on their own cloud that child's experience of becoming a reader because that is a, a unique journey. And some, for some of our kids, it happens really fast. Um, none of mine, actually. <laughs> and so some of our kids, it happens over a lot slower, but it doesn't really matter how fast you got there. I'm probably going to be talking more about the dangers of using reading levels with our older kids um, in another episode of the podcast coming up, but I hope this little bit was helpful for you today. In the show notes, I'll have a link to where you can find that quote that I read to you from Dr. Arnold Giselle at the Alliance for Childhood. And uh, thanks so much for your question. Hey, if you have a question you'd like me to answer on the show, head to readaloudrevival.com. Scroll to the bottom of the page, and that's where you'll see where to leave your voicemail. Okay, now on to my conversation with Ellen Jacobs. I have to tell you, I just finished rereading The Pleasures of Reading in an Age of Distraction for, I think it was my fourth or fifth time. I can't quite remember. I loved mm. it as much as Aww. ever. And I would just love to start our conversation with this idea of reading at whim, which is, of course, central to the book. So can you tell us what you mean by reading at whim? Sure. It's uh, it's actually a phrase I get from a poet uh, named Randall Jarrell, who says that in one of his essays. And it really stuck with me. Um, and I think the main reason it stuck with me is I, I've, you know, I've taught literature for more than 30 years now, and I've had so many wonderful students. Um, and I, I, more times than I can count, I've had a student come into my office, usually uh, in his or her senior year, she, let's say she, she's anticipating uh, life after college. And she's so worried that she won't know what to read, you know, mm -hmm. that she's had all of these years in which she's had teachers to tell her what to read. And then now she's about to graduate and she's going to be on her own. Oh, no. So <laughs> so she would say to me, can you give me like 10 books that, you know, every every intelligent person should read or mm -hmm. 20 books or 100 books or um, and 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 I would always say, read at whim. 
Re- read what you want to. You know, you've had all of these years of of being told what to read. Um, and she and the answer would almost always be something like, yeah, but what if I read what if I read junk? What if I read, you know, what uh, stuff that's not really good? And I said, well, do that for a while. Read, read stuff that's, you know, of no literary value for a while. Um, it, you know, if you care about the the books that 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 you've read in class, you're going to come back to that, and it, you know you you won't want you won't exist on a diet of junk food forever, but <laughs> give give yourself a chance to to take some of the pressure off and just go and read, and um, you know it's it was so funny because you know their first response would be I can't do that, and then their second response would be. I'm now so liberated. <laughs> and it, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that was always wonderful, you know, to be able to say, no, it's okay. It's okay. And so many students have written uh, back and later said, that was the best advice anyone ever gave me. Oh, Read wow. it, Web. That's so good. Well, what, so I'm hearing a couple of things. One thing I'm wondering about is you said they're sort of thinking, okay, so all these years of being told what to read, now I don't really know how to make these decisions for myself. Or, you know, I'm, I'm right. worried about trusting my gut, right. I guess. But do you right. think those years of being told what to read were – um, well, this is kind of going going to go into a question I want to ask you about assigning books. But I guess mm-hmm. is that cru- do you think how how crucial do you think that is to reading later on? Well, I think what happens is that uh, you know, stu- especially students who are like uh, who major in the humanities, um, they're uh, let's say in English or maybe in history. Uh, and often people who major in English also take a lot of history classes or who major in history also take a lot of philosophy classes. Uh-huh. And these are these are reading heavy courses. They're reading heavy disciplines. And, and in, almost invariably what happens is that during the time that they're in college, their, their, their scope for purely recreational reading is so limited. I think – that, that one of the things that happens to young people who love to read is that they gravitate towards courses where their love of reading is rewarded. <laughs> but sometimes those courses actually take them so far away from their habits of reading for enjoyment, reading for personal satisfaction, for delight, that they forget how. Yeah. Uh, and and then you have to kind of gently encourage them to, to recover that um, because that's what got them into being an English major or a history major or whatever in the first place. So get back to that, that, uh, that kind of reading and don't feel bad about it. Don't feel that everything that you read has to be a masterpiece, you know. Um, there's one line that I quote in in the Pleasures of Reading, where the poet W. H. Auden says that uh, that that masterpieces are really should be reserved for the high holy days of the spirit. Yes. It's not something that you eat every just as you don't have a Christmas feast every day, exactly, you know. Yes. <laughs> so you don't also have to be reading masterpieces every day. And and his view is that a really great work of literature takes a lot out of you. You know, it demands your attention and it demands your energy and you you're going to get tired if you do that all the time and maybe burn out. And that's the last thing we want is for our readers to burn out. Yeah, I've heard a lot of friends who majored in English say that they sort of quit reading because they mm-hmm. were doing so much. You're, what you're saying makes so much sense because they'll say, well, I was mm-hmm. doing so much reading for 
school and then I almost just burned out. But it, again, if you're just eating this diet of classic after classic, the heavy, right. hard books, you know, that make you really think and re- expect a lot of you. Yeah, you get worn out. Yeah, that makes you sense. You do. And you're also probably, you're learning to be a more analytical reader. You know, you're reading and you're thinking about, can I write a paper on this or how would I do on an exam? And, and that gets you away from it as well. So I, I used to do, uh, when I taught at Wheaton College, where I taught for 29 years, I would do a senior seminar. And in the senior seminar, I would, I would always assign some children's books. Awesome. <laughs> and I would just say, remember? Remember what this was like? Uh, yeah. You know? <laughs> And and I, I was I would, I would tell them you're you're not allowed to to make any notes you know you can't you can't read with your highlighter you know you had just sit down and enjoy it and just try to remember your you know what that was like and <laughs> students would always say but I don't know how to read without a highlighter <laughs> <laughs> I've for, I've forgotten <laughs> did you just pick like children's books that you loved to have them read or did they choose them. Um, well, one of the, uh, sometimes both. So sometimes okay. what I would do is, uh, I would, I would assign a couple of books and then, but then I would say, okay, go back and read something that meant a lot to you when you were nine years old. Oh yeah. Okay. One of the things you say in your book is that to put any book on a list of books you want to read, say over a summer, nearly guarantees that you won't read it. <laughs> this is what you said. Actually, let me read the quote. No matter how anxiously I had been anticipating it, as soon as it took its place among the other assigned texts, it became as broccoli unto me. And any (laughs) book not on the list, no matter how unattractive it might appear in other contexts, immediately became as desirable as a hot fudge sundae. Mm -hmm. And over the years, I have decided that this instinctive resistance to the predetermined is a gift, not a disability. And then later on the page, you say, I truly think I would rather read an indifferent book on a lark than a fine one according to schedule and plan. I think a lot of us can uh, resonate with that. That that, that speaks to us. Yeah, yeah. Because so much of the life of a reader, of a real reader, it seems to me, is about freedom. It's, It's about choosing this thing. And you know, I, I remember when I—I uh, I think I mentioned this in the Pleasures of Reading. I was probably around 20 years old. I was definitely in college before I ever s- stopped reading a book partway through. Um, <laughs> yeah, I had this kind of obsessive compulsive disorder. This <laughs> sense that if I started it, I had to finish it, uh, and and. I, I remember the book that I was reading. It was by an American novelist named William Gaddis. It's called The Recognitions, and it's about 1,100 pages long. Oh, wow. Yeah, and, that's a commitment. And, <laughs> and I made it to page 666. I made it to the, <laughs> to the mark of the beast. I was going to say, there's something symbolic there. <laughs> yeah. And I just said, I can't do this. I just can't do this. And 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 I just set the book down and I felt like an enormous burden lifting from me, like, oh, you can do that. I can do that. Yeah. If, uh, if I give a book a fair shot and it's just not doing it for me, then I can set it down and pick up something else. It's okay. You know, there's also what, uh, what Francis Bacon said 400 years ago. He said, you know, some books are just to be tasted. And he says, and others are to be sampled and some few to be chewed and digested. You know, mm-hmm. most of the, I mean, it's, it's okay if you pick up a book and you read part of it 
and and you realize, you know, I've learned from this book what I needed to. You know, I've gotten from this book what I needed to get. Now, obviously, that's different if it's a, you know, that's much easier to do with a nonfiction book than it is with a, a work of fiction. Yeah. But but I, I do think, you know, sometimes that's all you need. You just need to have part of, of that book and you don't have to read every page you know, strenuously, but with, with a, with a work of fiction, you you probably either, you're probably not going to do that. You're not going to jump around in it, but it, it's, you know, I, I have a, a, a friend, um, the wonderful writer, he, he calls himself a, a, a writer who draws, his name is Austin Cleon. Oh yes. and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm so work. glad you know of Austin. Yeah. Yes. He's just terrific. And, uh, uh, and, and Austin says that, uh, that one of the things that he will say to people who say, Oh, you got to read this book. And, and uh, this book is so great. This is so important. And it may be a, if it's a book that he's tried and he didn't finish, he will just say, yeah, I, it's just not for me. Mm. And which, which I think is a great answer. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's a bad book. You shouldn't read it. You shouldn't like it. He's yes. just saying, no, it's just not for me. You know, that's all. It, it, no offense to anyone, you know, no insult to anyone. And I think that's a, I think that's a terrific answer because some books just are not for you. And sometimes a book that might not be for you at some stage in your life will be for you at another stage in your life. I I, I think I mentioned this in uh, The Pleasures of Reading as well, that I probably tried reading G.K. Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday four or five times. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) And I was like in my 40s, I think, before I I thought it just kind of hit me. And all of a sudden, I adored that book and loved that book. To this day, I don't know why. It took me so long because I look at it and I now and I think, oh, you should always have liked that book. But I just couldn't get in sync with it somehow. You know, I was always out of sync yeah. with that book. And then at certain point, I fell into sync with it. And then it became one of my favorites. Okay, you're giving me hope because I'm 38 <laughs> and I mm-hmm. cannot get into Tolkien. I can't even say that on this podcast. We will get 100 <laughs> emails for that oh, comment. Oh, you but- are. You are in so much trouble. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but for my 40s, I'm going to fall in in my 40s. I just know it. It's something is going to click. <laughs> but you know what? It's okay if you don't. Hmm. It's okay if you don't. It really is. Now, you know, this is the thing. My, my wife is a big reader, right? And she loves reading. She loves a wide range of books. She's never been able to get into Tolkien. And I didn't want her to watch the movies because I wanted her to read the books first, you yes. know, and then you yes. can watch the movies. But I finally thought to myself, you know what? It's, that's just not her genre. It's just not her kind of thing. So let's just watch the movies together. And she okay. loved the movies and and it was fine, you know. It's a, it's a funny thing because there are two or three books that are really important to me that I, I really wish that she would read, uh-huh. but I know that it's just not going to be in her wheelhouse, yeah. and I don't want to put a burden on her. And in that way, if I read something, if I think about it that way, then sometimes I read something and I go, you know what? This really will connect with her, and then I'll give her that to read, and that usually works out great. So by thinking more about what I know about her mind and how her mind works, 
I can be more judicious in, 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 in recommending her to read things that she and I can really have a fruitful conversation about and that she won't just read out of duty. I mean, you know, if I said, you've got to read The Lord of the Rings, she would do it because she loves me. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but but I, I just, it's not something that, that just suits her particular readerly temperament. And I'm okay with that. It took me a while to get there, but I'm yeah. okay with that. So it's that sort of freedom to have taste because I think there's some kind yeah. of a resistance we have toward – well, I – and I wonder if it's sort of out of a fear, of, the same kind of fear that your students mentioned mm-hmm. when they're like, I don't know what to read, is that sort of fear that I won't be able to recognize what's good or not good because there might be a deficiency yeah. in me. It's almost a skepticism we have, like we're almost afraid to trust our own taste in some ways. No, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, we well, one of the things that um, I, I, was, I was listening to an interview one time with a music critic, and he says... Whenever I ask people, what kind of music do you like? They say, oh, I like all kinds of music. And, and he says, that's not true. Nobody likes all <laughs> kinds of music, you know. But people kind of want to present themselves as mm. having very broad tastes. Yes, and, yes. and, you know, I, 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 can, I can get into everything, you know. And he says, it's actually okay if, if you don't, you know, because – you're probably better off knowing that about yourself, that there are some things that you just kind of naturally, some kinds of music you just naturally gravitate towards and some that you're, you find off-putting. That doesn't mean that you would never listen to it, but you should probably acknowledge that, that that's going to be work rather than fun for you. Um, and I think the same thing is true about books. There are just certain, you know, there's some genres or some, kinds of authors or kind uh, there was I'm trying to, I'm I'm forgetting I wish I could remember it happened to me recently that I gave up on uh, on a writer that oh yes I do remember it but I'm not going to say <laughs> but it was it was a writer that someone uh, that several people had really pressured me to read for some time and I finally sat down so I'm really going to give it a try and I thought, you know what? This is just this does not work for me at all. Yeah. And I'm just gonna have to say that. I'm just gonna have to say I tried it, and then, as Austin says, it's not for me. Yep. And and then move on because there's a world full of books. I never can read them all anyway. That's so. right. Exactly. A lot of voices might tell you that you need to learn how to get better at homeschooling, but I know something about you. You don't actually need to homeschool better. You need to homeschool happier, to have more fun, to smile more, laugh more. You want a twinkle in your eye. (laughs) And you want your kids to know deep in their bones that you love homeschooling them. That twinkle is worth pursuing too because the key to a successful homeschool is a peaceful, happy mother. And that's what we're committed to helping you become at RAR Premium. RAR Premium is a unique program that offers mentoring for you, the homeschool mom, and we offer Open and Go Family Book Club. This is a family book club you can use with all ages from 4 to 17, and it will explore language arts, reading, and we often dip into writing, science, history, all across the curriculum as we uncover so many good and meaningful ideas. The best news is we do all the prep work for you. If you'd like to get a free sample of RAR Premium so you can see if it's a good fit for your family, head to readaloudrevival.com slash sample, or you can just text RAR sample, one word, to the number 
888-333-777, and we'll send it your way. Now, back to the show. Exactly. I was just interviewing Kate DiCamillo for the show not too long Mm. ago, Mm -hmm. and she and I were discussing... So she had this a similar experience I did as a kid where when you were when I was assigned a book in class, it would like pretty much almost guarantee that I was it would not become my favorite, yeah. right? So whatever book I was assigned in fifth grade and had to write my book report mm-hmm. on, that's not gonna be the book I'm staying up late reading under the flash with my flashlight yeah. late at night. Or, and yeah. Yeah. so I kind of wonder, I know, you know, obviously when it comes to classrooms and teachers and assigned reading, there's limitations, mm-hmm. but a mm-hmm. lot of listeners to this podcast are homeschoolers and homeschoolers have almost no limitations here. I'm kind of wondering what your thoughts are on assigned reading. What do you think is mm-hmm. the ideal situation there? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I try to do in teaching is to say, I, I, and I will often say this quite explicitly to my students, I will say, it's totally okay if you don't like this. Um, as it, I'm not teaching it to you because I want you to like it. I'm teaching it to you because I think it's important. Oh, and I will okay. I will explain to you the reasons why I think it's important. But you might you might really dislike this book. And that's perfectly fine with me as long as I can get you to understand why it matters. So for instance, in uh, I'm teaching a class right now in um, the history of autobiography. And one of the most important books in the history of autobiography is Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Confessions. And I tell them right up front, I said, I, I can't stand Rousseau. He is one of the most <laughs> obnoxious people in the world to me. Um, and I'm not going to try to cover that up for you. But this is a profoundly important book that had massive influence over how people understood their life stories. And so we need to read it. Um, and then conversely, at other times, I will say, look, for instance, I um, – I, I, I have taught in the past in several different classes uh, a fantasy novel by Susanna Clark called Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Okay. And I tell my students right up front, you do not have to like this book. This is a book that I'm teaching because it's important. I'll show you why it's important. But I have to tell you up front so you know I am a totally giddy fanboy about this book. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I will just say, I love this book. And it's okay <laughs> if you don't love it, but you need to know that I do. And and if you know, if you want to know, do I still respect you if you don't like it? I say, well, not as much. I don't respect you as much. <laughs> I love it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, so I try to be, you know, I mean, I try to be lighthearted about it, but but in, in both both the case of Rousseau and in the case of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, I'm trying to let let them understand that. Uh, it, it's not about me, you know, we're, we're, we're not, we're not evaluating books according to how much I like them or how much I don't like them. We're, we're doing other things, you know, yeah. here, we're trying to understand how certain ideas develop through time or how certain kinds of stories become really common and popular or how people deal with the modern world. Like for instance, you know, fantasy as a way of kind of dealing with an unsatisfying modern world. And that's something that those are all things that people can appreciate and can see the value of, even if they don't happen to like those particular books themselves. I 
this because as a homeschooling mom, I'm thinking through my own teenagers uh, and how we do books. We I don't assign very many. There's a few that we do. But then I tend to assign like large blocks of time that are just like, this is your reading time. You're going to read for this whole, yeah. you know, this hour and mm. then this hour every day. So it's sort of so they're developing their own taste and they're enjoying right. like what they're reading. And so that reading is sort of being cemented in their mind as a pleasurable activity. Yeah. But I love what you said about we're reading this book. We're going to read this book together because it's important. It's okay if you don't like it. Um, yeah. And I yeah. love also like, your excitement about – what was it called? Dr. S- Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I changed yes. that to Dr. Strange. Did you see how I did <laughs> Yeah. That? Obviously. Yeah. That's the easy thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, and because if you say I'm a total fanboy about this book, I mean, I would as yeah. a student be like, oh, I'm starting on this one right away. Just because yeah, even yeah. if I didn't like it, yeah. it would yeah. be really intriguing to me to have a teacher that was excited excited about the book they're teaching. So, yeah, Yeah, I will do. I I, I mean, when I get that way about a book, I will, you know, I mean, I really will do the whole, the whole fanboy thing. So I'll like sit down with them and I'll say, okay, we have to cast the movie of this. Who's going to (laughs) play? We'll go through that, you know, but what I do is, you know, there'll be times when I'll say to them, this book is not for me. And other times this book is so totally for me, but I'm still giving them attention and I'm still working through them and thinking through them and trying to understand what they're doing. So I'm trying to set a pattern of, of an ability to pay close attention to things, even when, well, you know, regardless of whether I happen to like it or not. And sometimes liking a book too much can make us maybe not pay attention to some things and hating a book can make us not pay so much attention. So I'm trying to model that. And when you know when you have your kids sit down, you say you're going to read this for an hour, you're giving them regardless of what they're reading. One of the things you're doing is that you're giving them an hour's practice in being attentive. And that is huge in wow. our society today. <laughs> One of the things I've noticed uh, I'm telling a tale on my students here. One of the things I've noticed <laughs> is that uh, since I've gotten really hard line about not allowing any digital devices in classes, Uh um, that more of my students have to go to the bathroom in the middle of class. (laughs) And I'm... I do not know because I'm not following them into the bathroom, but I just feel like there's 90% chance that they're going in there to check their social media yeah, for sure. in the middle of class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all of a sudden, everyone has a weak bladder. How yeah. did that happen? <laughs> How's that correlated? <laughs> Speaking of digital devices, um, I really related to your own experience that you talk about in The Pleasures of Reading, where you found your kid, Kindle sort of helped you get back. And I don't know if it was getting back into a reading group, but or just like it was. Your, yeah, tell us about more it about was. that. I mean, I, I felt like that was so, you know, the Kindle first Kindle came out around a decade ago. And and I felt like that was at a time when, like, for instance, you know, Twitter was getting started. I mean, I'm not on Twitter anymore, but I got on Twitter in 2007. So I was a pretty early adopter of it. And it was great those first few years yeah. before all the politicians and journalists got on yeah. there. You know, yeah. it was, I mean, there was just a lot of, I had a lot of conversations. I met people who are like friends of mine now. And um, even though we never talk on Twitter anymore, we talk in other places. Um, and, you know, social media in general were just starting to kick in. And um, I started a blog at that time and that I was pretty seriously committed to. Um, And 
a lot of things where I just felt like the whole online world was just ramping up and, and I had never had a problem concentrating on reading. I mean, I've been doing it since I was three years old. I started reading when I was three and I come from a family of readers, not educated people. I'm the only person in my family who even graduated from high school. Oh, wow. But, but we were all, everybody was a reader. And so it was a really normal thing for me, like a really normal uh, uh, the characteristic evening in my house was four or five people when I was growing up, four or five people sitting in a room, the TV is on, but the sound is turned down and everyone is reading. <laughs> and th- that was, oh, that was wow. just like, that was, that was our family life. Yeah. I mean, the TV never went off, but nobody ever actually paid attention to it because <laughs> everybody was reading. So I was all, I was from a very early age, I was used to reading, uh, and, and had long, I could do it for a long, long time. And all of a sudden here I am, you know, I guess in my forties and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't read anymore. What what's going? And I was really worried about myself, and but it was just odd how the Kindle seemed to get me back into the rhythm of reading again. And I think it was because almost the only thing you can do with a Kindle is click the page turn button, yeah. you know, and that really helped me. It got me back into. So I'm actually, I, I, and I've talked to a number of other professors who do the same thing is that whenever I've got a book coming up that I teach, uh, I, I, I always assign the paper copies and I underline and I, you know, put stickies in and I do all kinds of stuff that I've done for decades. Uh-huh. But but first thing I do is sit down and read it on Kindle. Uh, so I, yeah. so a lot of us, a lot of us in teaching now have two copies of everything that we teach. We have the digital copy and then the paper copy and the digital copy is tremendously useful. It's, it's not good in class because in class, I, here's what I will want to do. I will say, turn to page 81 mm-hmm. and people can do that. If they have a paper book, they can do that really fast. Yep. And then I will say, okay, put your finger there on page 81 and turn over to page 123. And then we'll go back and forth between those two. You cannot do that with a Kindle. Yeah, right. Um, but if you need to like search for every appearance of a word, a Kindle is fantastic. Yeah. So, so I, I find myself using both. Um, and I'm, I'm really grateful for e-reading. It has really been helpful to me. always thought of myself as a, I'm a paper book reader, a codex, I think mm-hmm. is what you called it in your book. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, I read books on real books and I, I'm not really into ebooks because, and part of it was that I really do have a feel for like, you know, when you're holding a book and you know about where you are and where words are on a page. And so you can I kind know. of like flip back to where you, when yep. you want to talk to somebody about that thing you read. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and you can't do that with a Kindle, but this, this summer I found myself well, I'm always wanting to put a book in my bag wherever we're going, if we're traveling or if we're just going mm-hmm. to the, taking the kids to the park or something. And a Kindle is very lightweight and you can bring a lot of books with you that yep. way, <laughs> so, depending on what you're in the mood for reading. I also like how my paper white, I can read it in bed at mm-hmm. night and it doesn't just, dis- yep. like, I don't have to use a book light. It doesn't disturb my husband. Yep. So I have found it to be really helpful if I'm having a hard time sleeping. I can, it doesn't have blue light like your phone. So you don't have to worry about that. Anyway, I have read a lot more since I've yeah. uh, gotten myself Kindle. So yeah, it's I nice have to have experience. that option. It really is. Sometimes it's the right thing. So a question <laughs> I find myself constantly wrestling with here at Read Aloud Revival is 
what is reading for? And I, as I was reading your book this time, that was a question I was kind of looking for. And I, I thought, okay, well, you know, you make a really compelling argument that reading is for pleasure, like primarily mm-hmm. for pleasure, and secondarily, I think, for edification. But I was wondering if I was getting that right, or if I was, what, what, how you would answer that question. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I think the really amazing thing about reading is that it's for so many different things, right? <laughs> that there are, but um, I really wanted to emphasize pleasure as the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. That that was the, I, I wanted readers to be reconnected to that. As I was explaining to you, so much of this came from students who were so responsible and so guilt-stricken and so dutiful, and I wanted them to be able to recover that pleasure because I think the pleasure is the foundation for mm-hmm. other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, even that pleasure, there is that there, there, that comes in different varieties. There's that pleasure of, you know, what, what I, uh, I call being lost in a book, right? That you're, you're just completely absorbed in it. It's just you and that book in a little world. But there's also, and since, you know, you talk about reading aloud, there's the pleasure of, of, of connecting with other people, with people you love through yes. reading. Yeah. Well, as parents and educators, I think we want our kids to read well, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I, I sort of am not sure that a lot of us know what we mean by that. So a little background there is that um, I have a strong dislike of preachy or messagey books, especially yeah. for kids. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. one of those, the reason why is because I really believe that's not what books are for. You know, books are right. not, or I, I think they should not be primarily for getting our children to agree with us or to believe a certain thing. So I have this firm idea in my mind of what reading is not for. It's not for preaching, Mm -hmm. not for moralizing. But then I start asking the question of, okay, so reading's not for that. What is reading for? What are books for? And what does it mean to read well? And I I sort of like trip over myself a little bit. So what do you when you're thinking of a child reading well or a student, let's say reading well, what does that look like for you? I mean, I think that it is all about um navigating the the tension between sameness and difference as i feel like as uh, especially works of fiction that ex- or ju- i should say narrative works right because it would be equally true of a memoir of an autobiography as it is of a work of fiction there's this this wonderful sense that you have where it's like this person is so much like me and yet this person isn't me this person is, you know, you 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 read and you see, uh, here's someone who reminds me so much of myself. And yet in this situation, the way he acted, that's not what I would have done. He's, you know, he's, he, he, he reacts differently than me. He's hurt where I would be angry or, mm. and I, I feel like that one of the main things it's for in life is navigating that, that tension between sameness and difference. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's kind of a mistake to think that to try to choose books for kids that are going to mirror their own experience too much. Right. You want to have some of that, but you you also want to have it going back out beyond that experience, but you don't want it to be so alien that they just can't connect with it at any point. Yeah. And and I and I feel like that that is whenever you have that encounter where there is that tension between sameness and difference, where you can say, this character is like me in these ways, but different than me in in other ways. You're simultaneously learning something about the diversity of personalities in the world and the diversity of experiences in the world, and also learning something about yourself. 
you know, oh, I'm that way, you know, oh, I do this rather than that. I do this. It's, it's a way of continually testing the boundaries of your own personality and coming to understand yourself better. But the way that you do that is by coming to understand other people better. And, and, and that's, I think, where the really exciting thing goes. You know, people will often say, oh, I was that character. I was exactly that character. I was exactly like that. And I think, well, that's cool, but that's not necessarily the best thing. Um, it's one of the reasons I, I think, uh, uh, you know, I mean, obviously the Harry Potter books are centered on on Harry, but I think one of the really wise things that that Rowling did was to have these two friends who were always with him, who are very different personality types. Mm, okay. And so people can say, yeah, I'm more like Ron, or I'm more like Hermione, or I'm, you know, they could they could connect with different personalities uh, and not just the personality of the protagonist. Yes. Um, and I feel like that, that's really, for me, that's still what reading is all about. When I read, I'm writing a book right now about reading old books and the value oh, of reading old books. Okay. And, and uh, thank you for that response. That's very encouraging. <laughs> um, but, and, and that's what I talk about there. You know, when you reach out towards the past and you read these, these great works from the past, or not even great, just anything from the past, that's what is really interesting about it is those moments when you say, oh, they're just like me. And then those moments when you say, oh, they're not like me at all. Yeah. You know, yeah. because the culture is so different and the the norms are so different and the expectations are so different. And and that kind of, you know, connecting where you 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 see a sameness, but then in the very next moment, almost you see a difference uh, that I think is so enriching and so deepening to your your personality. And I think that's one of the things that reading that's what reading is for. I, I'm going to steal a, a phrase that I actually use for the subtitle of my book. There's um, there is a uh, passage in one of Thomas Pynchon's novels, uh, not recommended for children, not recommended for that many <laughs> adults either. They're okay. pretty tough. But there's a character who is talking about the importance of understanding the past. And he says, you have to have temporal bandwidth. Um, and then he says he's an engineer. So he puts everything in engineer like terms. He says, temporal bandwidth is proportionate to personal density. <laughs> and what he means by that, he says, is that the bigger your now is, the bigger your sense of the world is both. And you, this is true when you extend in space into other cultures, as well as extending into time. He said, it's not just like you're learning stuff but you're becoming a denser person. Mm. You're becoming, you've got more substance to your character and your personality because the more you connect with this diversity of experiences across time and across space, the less likely you are to be blown about by whatever wind happens to be blowing in your culture at the moment. I mean, I really do think that, that that one of the things that reading can do for you is to give you that habit of kind of reaching out towards other minds and reaching out towards other hearts. And, and, and that is a really good habit to have. And the more that you come to understand the diversity of experiences and the range of personality types and the ways in which our varying cultural backgrounds shape us, I think the more patient you become with other people, you know, the less the less narrowly, rigidly judgmental you become. And um, and I think I mean, obviously, we all want our kids to have 
to have good judgment. I think reading a lot, the more reading you do, the easier it is for you to overcome that temptation, I think, because you get used to encountering other people, widely varying people, but in a kind of a low stakes environment. So books give us that kind of training in connect, connecting to others that I think really can help us because it's because the stakes are a little lower and it's not as threatening and it gives us some practice. <laughs> and then we can we can, you know, use that when we encounter people later on. That'll never be automatic. It'll never be automatic. You, mm-hmm. But you can help. You can encourage if you're a parent or you're a teacher, you can encourage people to read with that spirit. And I think if you do, you're you're not just enabling them to navigate the world more effectively. You're, you're helping them to have more of this personal density. Well, Alan Jacobs, this has been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for coming to the show. We would love to have you back when your next book comes out. I would love to chat with you about it. That would be terrific. I've really had a great time. So let's do it again. Now it's time for Let the Kids Speak. This is my favorite part of the podcast. Kids tell us about their favorite books. I'm Ellie and I'm seven years old. I'm from Kent, Washington. My favorite book is Boxcar Children because they solve lots of mysteries. Hi, I'm Melina, and I'm 11 years old, and I live in Kent, Washington. My favorite book is Harry Potter because it's mysterious, and it makes me want to keep reading. Bye. Ruthie, can you say hi? Hi. (laughs) My name is Catherine Arndt. I'm talking on behalf of my daughter, Ruth Arndt. We are in Lebanon, Oregon, and she's 17 months old, and her favorite book is The Little Mouse, The Red Ripe Strawberry, and The Big Hungry Bear by Don and Audrey Wood. Can you tell them what sound a mouse makes? (laughs) It makes squeak squeak. Anyhow, she loves the mouse, she loves the strawberry, and she loves the vase of flowers that appears throughout the entire book. My name is Elena Meadows, and I am 12 years old. My family moves around a lot, but we live in Lorian, Michigan with my grandparents right now. My favorite books are the Warriors series because they're about cats who are wild and cool, but they're still furry and fluffy. That makes me happy. My favorite characters are Blue Star and Brambleclaw. I hope one day that there could be an author access with one of the writers that uses the pen name Aaron Hunter to make the series. Hello, my name is Sean I'm six years old, and I live in San Antonio, Texas, and my favorite book is Mouth Soup. The funniest part in it is this. The mouse is trying to sleep and crickets come, and then her has to yell because they got so, so loud. They go some somewhere else and click somewhere else so the mouse can sleep and that's what the mouse said. My name is Kevin and and I'm six years old and I live in Germany and my favorite book with my mom 
read loud to me was the trumpeter's horn. Because it's sing. Hi, my name's Amos, and my favorite. And I'm seven years old, and I live in Alabama. And my favorite book series is Puppy Pirates. And the thing I like about it is that they're pirates and they're puppies, and that they can talk. Hi, my name is Josiah. I live. I'm 11 years old. I live in Alabama, and my favorite book is The Hobbit because it is about a little hobbit who went on an unexpected journey. With twelve dwarves and a wizard named Gandalf. Hi, my name is Mason. I'm 13 years old, and I'm from Alabama. My favorite book series is the Wing Feather Saga. The reason I love the Wing Feather Saga is because of the amazing and magical world of Ariar in the books, and the incredible adventures that the main characters go on. My name is Orson. I'm seven and a half years old. My, I'm from Boone, North Carolina. My favorite book that has been read aloud to me is Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban by J.K. Rowling. My favorite all-time book is The Book with No Pictures by P.J. Novak. Hi, my name is Oliver, and 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 I am five years old. I live in Boone. North Carolina. My my favorite book read to me is Fox and Socks by Dr. Seuss. My favorite book to look at are the Hilda book by Luke Pearson. Thank you so much, kids. Hey, the show notes for today's episode are at readaloudrevival.com/slash. One four five. That's where you're going to find everything we talked about on the show today. I'll be back in two weeks with another episode for you. In the meantime, go make meaningful and lasting connections with your kids through books. Are you still here? Okay. Well, I am too, and I wanted to check to see if you've had a chance to download the samples from RAR Premium yet. RAR Premium is committed to helping you become the peaceful, happy mom you're called to be, so that your kids know deep in their bones that you just love homeschooling them, and also so that they can become lifelong voracious readers. Get a free sample of RAR Premium by going to readaloudrevival.com/sample, or by texting the word RAR sample. Like it's one word, all squished together, <laughs> to the number three three seven seven seven.